0: Good morning Valley family. How's everybody doing today? Uh, I am so excited uh, about a guest speaker that we have. Before I introduce him, I just want to say, what's up with our Route 55 group? Like they just went on a cruise. Now they're going to Sight and Sound Theater there. It almost makes me want to be 55. Not really, but but uh, boy, they have a lot of fun together, no doubt about that. That's a trip that's coming up. You can find out more about all of those announcements and events uh, on your Valley app or on our church uh, website. Check it out and be involved with with everything that we have uh, going on. Well, this is a, a exciting morning for me. Longtime friends actually uh, are, are with us. We went out to dinner, Susie and I, last night with the Justers, and we were talking about. Uh, Actually, how 1995 uh, Mid-Atlantic Leadership Conference that we were both in, Dan and I were on the steering committee of of that organization, how that conference in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania just impacted our lives so much. And uh, you may not know it, Valley Family, but that changed the trajectory of our church. That conference it was out of that conference that really I had a real strong uh, I guess you'd say burden on my heart that our church was supposed to be a diverse congregation and came back and began to preach about that and uh, and really that that was what God's desire was for our church and and look at us now you know so just amazing it had a tremendous impact on, on Dan and his life uh, as well so a lot of years uh, that, that we've known each other. He's a prolific author. You'll see a book table out in the cafe. I encourage you, let's just clean out all those books so, so we don't have to ship anything back. Here's a couple that I want to highlight. Uh, first of all, Israel and... Israel, the church, and the last days. He's going to be talking a little bit about that today. God's plan for Israel and the end times, and then I think this is one you may be interested in as well: heaven, hell, and the afterlife—what the Bible really says. Nice little thin read there. Pick that up, and uh, this is actually my copy that I already bought because I was afraid it was going to be completely cleaned out. And that is Jewish roots: understanding your Jewish faith, and that's written for us. And so I encourage you to check out the book table uh, on on your way out, and uh, like I said, let's clear it out, hopefully leave some for the 11 o'clock crowd, okay, Uh, or they're going to be upset, but uh, we're so excited to have Dan and Patty Juster with us today. By way of introduction, uh, Dr. Daniel Juster was the founding president of the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations for nine years. He's the senior leader of Beth Messiah Congregation Rockville, Maryland for 22 years, and is currently a member of the apostolic team that governs Tycoon International Ministries, authored many, many books that are out there. A couple of them I just highlighted there, uh, and, and he's really a featured speaker at many conferences and across the globe. We were, we were actually talking about, we go to Ukraine and, and we know people that are like, oh, Dan Juster. I mean, he's just known all around the world. God using him, working through his life and Patty's life in such a powerful way of really bringing unity to the Christian church, Messianic, Jews, and also uh, Christians as well, Uh, the unity that we have in the faith that we share together. And so, Valley Family, I'm just going to ask you right now, would you give Dr. Daniel Juster a big, big hand this morning?
1: Thank you so much, Greg. Well, you know, we were involved in this Mid-Atlantic Leadership Conference for many years. And uh, I knew Greg's dad and mom well, who were on that for many years before him. And somehow we got disconnected. You know, we moved to Israel and he moved on with his life. And then we reconnected again uh, in Dallas at a conference that we're both part of every year. So that was exciting, and he invited me to come, hopefully maybe to clarify some things about the doctrine of the last days and the return of the Lord. And I hope that I can bring simplicity and clarity to you today on that, as well as connect you to Jewish ministry. You know, your church can have a Jewish ministry. I bet there are Jews that moved up from New York that are way up here in this Poughkeepsie area I bet you have them and and you know maybe over the years we'll teach you to have a Jewish contingent in your midst and how that can work out that's the next diversity group for you it can happen little training and a little faith and a little prayer well I wanted to present what I'm going to present biographically but let me say one thing about our ministry we really would love you to sign up for our newsletter, Patty and I. It's called Restoration from Zion. And we have sign-up sheets on the back, but if you don't want to wait at the table to do that, you can just go on the internet, put Restoration from Zion on your search net. Isn't that easy? Restoration from Zion. It will also connect you to T. Kuhn, uh International Global, which is the broad family that I used to lead. I turned it over to my number one disciple of yesteryear, who's in Israel with us. And uh, Tikkun Global is a network. We network eight and a half, nine congregations. We're planting the ninth in Israel, 25 in the United States, one in Brazil, one in Canada. So, you know, we have this... um, we're over 40 now in terms of ministries and congregations plus 20 um, missionaries you would call them we call them emissaries because you know that's a little sensitive word for the jewish community and um, so it's it's a growing thing and we're turning over things to the next generation which is exciting so um, that's what we do please uh, as a conclusion of this message i'll say this again Be connected, get educated. We have teaching newsletters. They're not just, they're informational about where we're going and what's happening in the world. I recently got back from China uh, and other countries in Asia where amazing things are happening, uh, connecting to restoration and um, connecting to the last days. The Chinese church is one of the most important things today happening in the last days, and it's good to familiarize familiarize yourself with that. My wife uh, uh, is here, and I'd like Patty to stand up and to introduce her. She's a great part of this. (laughs) She ministers in prophetic teaching, and if I want something to happen, I invite her to do something. So Patty, come on up and make something happen. Though You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. But, uh, you know, we're kind of, we, we, we consider ourselves newlyweds, you know, our anniversary will be next month, 48 years, and um, <laughs> so I want to tell you, young folks that have only been married 30 years or yes, when you hit 40 years, I mean, that is when the romance hits you. It's like, that is the time. Amen. I mean, I'm not kidding, but <laughs> some of you think I'm kidding, but I'm not. It comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from his grace. So uh, I'm a Jewish person uh, with a Norwegian mother, Jewish father, and because of that, I wasn't raised religiously, so I'm going to convey the theology a little bit through my story. And... Um, That's why I wasn't raised religiously, and then my father died when I was young, a couple years after his death, when I was 12 and a half. The Lord spoke to me and said that I should be relating to him, and I was led in relating to God to a reformed church, which you know about here. I saw one in Fishkill that was from 1716. Well, that was the denomination where I heard the gospel and was saved at 12 and a half years old. Way back in ancient days in April 1960, I still remember when, I still remember the preacher, and uh, still remember praying to accept the Lord, and then uh, really was largely discipled through church camps, Bible studies, Word of Life camp in the Adirondacks. Anybody ever hear of that? Yeah, that that was my uh, my youth. I was there six years, became a senior counselor on the staff, and went through all that, um and agree with some of it and don't agree with other parts of it that's part of my story today but i'm indebted to them for giving me male role models and making me more rugged and going hiking and camping and learning how to do things that was like the boy scouts for me you know so that was that was my early i grew up in bergen county which is not that far south you know that's the north most northeast county of new jersey just below rockland county you know and then you come up on the west side of the Hudson River. See, we are the real West Bank. (laughs) You read about the West Bank, right? Bergen County is the West Bank. I guess you're the East Bank. Uh, You're sort of like Jordan over here. I don't know what you you guys are over here. So, um, then um, by the time I graduated from high school I felt called to be a pastor Went to the King's College for the first two years in Briarcliff Manor. Wow, everybody here, Briarcliff Manor, and that's a long story. Had a complete faith crash, psychological crash, and ended in total misery and skepticism. Uh, So I I transferred to Wheaton College, and I had a spiritual father who helped things come back together for me, and uh, went to... Uh, graduate school and then graduated from Presbyterian Seminary. And I was struggling with whether or not to become a professor or to become a pastor at that point. I could have gone either way. I had this image of what my life would be. I would become a pastor of a country church in the Adirondack Mountains. And I would just go hiking in the mountains and care for a little flock. That was my plan. God didn't have that plan. But um, that was my plan and uh, through Chaplain Welsh, um, uh, the the pastor of the students at Wheaton College, uh, I he was the interim pastor at a church called the First Hebrew Christian Church, and uh, he encouraged me because of my Jewish father to take this church. I was ordained at that point into the Presbyterian Church where I finished seminary. So as a Presbyterian. So I always like to introduce myself as a Jewishian Presbyterian, Messianic Jew. And if anybody has any identity problems, you know, get over it, get a life. All of the things that God put into you from your ancestry and your friends, that's what he makes your identity, which is part of the experience I'm going to tell you about. And um, we were in that church. I was only going to do it for a year or two. Then I wanted to go on and take a normal Presbyterian church because I wanted the respect of a normal Presbyterian pastor. I was running from the charismatic world at that point because of a bad experience. And then um, while I was there at that church, I was challenged about an issue that I had never thought about before. And that is the identity of Jewish people who come to faith in Jesus. Are they called to still be Jewish and identify and live as part of their people as well as part of the church so that they continue to identify with the Sabbath and feast, circumcise their sons so that they're still part of the covenant of God with the Jewish people? Or do they just become Christians like other Christians? The melting pot. I said, I've never thought of this before. I have to study it. So I studied this issue For a year and a half, intensively, I was in Chicago, went to the best libraries, read everything I could on the issue, and at the end of the study, I came to a profound conviction. Number one, that Jews who come to faith in Jesus are still called to identify and live as Jews, because in the Bible, you'll see this, the Jewish believers in Jesus are called the saved remnant of Israel and you can't be the saved remnant of Israel if you leave Israel you have to represent your people into what they are going to eventually become and believe but we're also called to be part of the body of Christ we are the Jewish partners in that marriage called one new man and how to walk that out well not so hard being a Presbyterian and our church was Presbyterian related so we changed our orientation, and we fostered Jewish life in our congregation, changed our name to Adatha Tikva. That congregation is going very strong today in the north side of Chicago, in the suburbs. And uh, we started to see more Jewish people come to faith and disciple them in this, and then we're called to Washington. I, I'll just read you a couple of verses on this in terms of this first part, The Saved Remnant of Israel. In verse 5, Paul says, at the present time, there has come to be a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And then he says in verse 16, if the first fruit is holy, so is the whole batch of dough. In other words, we are the ones who sanctify and make holy the rest of our people who haven't yet come to faith. Just like the believing partner in a marriage with an unbeliever sanctifies that partner and their children. It doesn't mean they're automatically saved, but they are included within a special intentionality of God to get them saved because of the relationship with the believing spouse and the children. So it is with Israel. And by the way, so it is with every distinct ethnic group. Even though Israel is uniquely uh, elect as a nation, playing a part in world affairs, and that's why the whole world's attention is on Israel, from anti-Semitism to pro-Israel Christian Zionism. But I also understood in those days that the salvation of Israel was a key to the second coming, because in Romans chapter 11, and this is classic in many of the contrary commentaries, Paul says uh, in verse Thir- uh, 13, I am speaking to you in Gentiles, in as far as I'm an emissary to the Gentiles, I spotlight my ministry. And Gentile's not a negative word here. It means those from the other nations other than Israel. I spotlight or magnify my ministry, if I may provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if their rejection leads to the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And most commentators... Uh, in the 20th century, understood this to be the ultimate conversion of the Jewish people to faith in Jesus and that the ultimate conversion of the Jewish people to faith in Jesus uh, is the key to the second coming. It's when Israel turns to Jesus that Jesus will return. Uh, I know that that's not what I was taught in high school but I came to believe this and like I said many of the best commentators say this and what is shocking to me I found out in the late 90s that this is the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Paragraph 674 quotes this and says all of heaven is awaiting for his return but and it's hanging at every moment but that return which could happen at any time will not happen until his ancient people recognize him. Isn't that amazing? You look it up, paragraph 674, you can Google it, it'll come right up. You can Google any paragraph in the catechism. How's that for a free church like this one? You can Google anything in the Catholic catechism, it'll come up. I bet you don't get your doctrinal statement coming up on Google like that. So anyway, so I was just uh, living life as a Jewesian Presbyterian at that point, and God called to Washington and, you know, was happy and Then I got challenged because there were these movements in the Washington area called the Restoration of the Church. And you you might remember some of these figures like Bob Wright and and Covenant Life in those days when they were oriented as they were under CJ and Larry back in the 1980ish period. And one of their leaders came to my house and said to me, would you like to come to a pastor's fellowship? And I said, yeah, I, lo- I love Pastor's Fellowship. He says, well, you know, we're committed to the unity of the church. You know, Jesus prayed that the church might be one, that the world might believe. And I said, yeah, I haven't thought a lot about that, but I suppose that's good. And then he said, do you believe in the restoration of the church? I said, I don't know what you're talking about, restoration of the church. And then he said, well, you know, apostles and prophets and Ephesians 4, and I said, I don't know what you're talking about so I changed the subject and I said do you believe in the restoration of Israel he said the church is Israel that that the ongoing meaning of Israel is the church and in his view the national ethnic people of God the Jewish people no longer were important in the plan of God so I argued with him And I said, in Romans chapter 11, 28 and 29, it says, concerning the good news, they're hostile for your sake, but concerning chosenness or the election, they're loved on account of the patriarchs for the gift and call of God to the Jewish people is irrevocable, that there is an irrevocable calling on the Jewish people and that it says here that all the Jewish people will be saved at the end uh, and so all Israel will be saved, it says earlier. What do you do with that? He said, well, that's easy. Those that are enemies of the gospel are the Jews that haven't believed, and those that have believed that are chosen of God are the Christians. I said, you can't do that with that verse. He said, what do you mean I can't? I just did it. What a perversity of interpretation that was. Just a failure to read the Bible for what it says. So um, I was going to come to the pastor's fellowship. He went home, left my house, and didn't think a whole lot about it, and then one day I was having devotions with the Lord, and I had what I consider to be a visitation from the Lord. It readjusted my whole orientation toward life and theology. It was the most profound experience I ever had in God since my conversion and being baptized in the Spirit when I was 17 years old. And in this experience, the Lord came and he began to speak to me and the first thing he said was what do you have that you did not receive and he took me through my life people that became spiritual fathers professors who taught me and I realized all of these people that had impacted my life and made me who I am you know a lot of who we are is the combination of the people who imparted to us and I was crying, you know, in this, and he said, when you, when you lost your father, I became a father to you. And I put fathers in your life. And then he said, and by, he said, you know, you were only in Jewish ministry because you loved your father and mother. You loved your Jewish father, and I did very, very much. And uh, you loved your Jewish, uh, your, your Norwegian mother. And being a Messianic Jew, as you've put, Jew- Jewishness in honor of your father together with your mother's faith in Jesus the Norwegian side and so it, that's so appropriate you know for what you are and then he said you're more involved in Jewish ministry because of your Norwegian ancestors than being than your Jewish father now that was stunning to me I have citizenship in Israel because of my Jewish father my children have citizenship and grandchildren because of my Jewish father How could he say this? Now, I knew that my mother came from a family that honored the Jewish people because she would tell me stories about her father, and I knew my grandmother did. I didn't know my grandfather. He died before I was born. But as I was reflecting, then God said to me, I've called you as a Messianic Jewish leader, And if you're going to be the kind of Messianic Jewish leader that I've called you to be, you've got to love my whole church. And he said, I've taken you through various streams of the church so that you would love my whole church. And like I said, I was saved in the Reformed Church, ordained in the Presbyterian, my brother and sister saved in the Baptist Church. So I had a lot of connection to that. I... um, Also knew the Evangelical Free Church where I went to seminary. We were members of the Lutheran Church before we became Presbyterian ordained. And I had friends in the Methodist Church and had sometimes attended Anglican Church services. Knew nothing about Catholics other than that, something to be avoided. Now that's a whole other story. It's a whole other story in terms of what God is doing in the Catholic Church today, which is amazing. With a hundred million Catholic Charismatics that I'm connected to. But that's another story. So he gives me this picture of his love for the church. And then he said, And I will restore my church to unity and power before the return of the Lord. And that church in unity will be the key to the salvation of Israel. And then he said, connecting it to Ephesians 4, and I'm going to go over the verses, I will raise up mighty apostles and prophets in the last days, who will lead my church into unity before the return of the Lord. So I came out of that experience with a belief that we were moving toward the unity of the church, that we're moving toward revival of the church in power, that we're moving toward a church that would have a heart for Israel in promoting them to jealousy, and a, a church that would complete the work of world evangelism. Because that church, empowered and, 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 and uh, under fivefold leadership, would complete the work of world evangelism. So I had this new theology of restoration, and when I came out of that, I shared it with my right arm person who was in his 20s. I was like 32 years old. Asher and Trader in his twenties, and and he bought into it right away, and we decided we needed to join a network of church restorationists. So we actually joined our Messianic Jewish congregation. We were part of a national union that I helped found uh, of twenty congregations, but we joined this other network of churches in Maryland, so we could live out that restoration conviction. And then in 1984, Asher had this prophetic word that we were to form a network of congregations that were related to us because we were planting at that point, And that was the origins of what we know as Tikkun, which means restoration. It's a Hebrew word for restoration. That's why we chose it. So um, I, I'll go over this uh, for you now, biblically, because it's a key to understanding what the last days are. But I wanted to say about the Norwegian part, Uh, I didn't understand this until I traveled to Norway and looked up my relatives, and I found my cousin, my mother's first cousin, who she continued to correspond with all their lives, and uh, she told me the story of the family and that this connection in Norway of the restoration of the, uh, excuse me, of world missions, the commitment to world missions, and commitment to the salvation of Israel were seen as two parts of one ultimate thrust in the church and that as far as she knew it went back she could not trace it before 1840. And then I met with the dean of the Lutheran Theological School in Oslo who's been a great supporter of the Messianic Jewish movement. Wrote a book that's about this thick uh, on the history of Messianic Jews. His name is Oskar Skarsene. You have to say it that way from Norwegian. Any Norwegians here? No Norwegian. Oh wait maybe one. Oscar, you know, Minnesota, you know, Oscar Skarseneh, but anyway, uh, written a lot of great stuff supporting us, and he explained to us this historical theology, which he described in his book, Israel's Friend, not in English, sadly, which he called the Four Pillars, and I want to go over those four pillars, because what God revealed to me in 1980-81, right in the uh, turn of the year, was these four pillars, which I hadn't understood before. It goes back to the Puritans, and it came to tremendous fruition when there was a revival in the Lutherans in the 1730s called Lutheran Pietism in Germany, and then that came into Scandinavia, and there were four pillars. And it was based on the people having a desire for the return of the Lord. Do you know that we're supposed to have a a heart for the return of the Lord? It says, even so come, Lord Jesus. It says, Maranatha, come, Lord. Paul says, I'm looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And this desire for the near coming of the Lord has to be in every heart. I know it's hard because oh, it's been 2,000 years, but listen, every generation of Christians is supposed to live as though the Lord could come soon within, a, uh, within their lifetime or early on, even within a few years, God can speed things up and come very soon. And we have to want to long for that coming. If we don't desire that coming, we're not in right order biblically because that second coming is when God wipes away the tears, puts everything in order on this earth, saves Israel and the nations. That has to be the longing for us. So they were asking, what must we do to bring the second coming? See, these Christians were thinking, and the the thinking of this went back to the Puritans, actually, even though they believed they were predestined to do these things. What must we do, or is there anything we can do to see the second coming? Now, there were several things that fed into this for one thing, they believed there was to be a passionate love for Jesus in the believing church. They saw this in terms of the outpouring of the Spirit in Pentecost, because in Joel chapter 2, which is repeated in Acts, they saw it. it was only partially fulfilled, because in Acts chapter 2 says, in the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And in Acts chapter 2, it wasn't all flesh, it was a contingent of Jewish people, some from the diaspora, but it's on all flesh, all kinds of nations, all kinds of people. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will see visions and uh, see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my slaves, male and female, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. Now, there are many other texts. Uh, you can hear the message by Asher and Trader on why we believe in a last days world revival. But this view of there being a Last Days World revival that ignites God's people became a passion for these folks. And um, I just want to say that this idea of God's people having intense passion is a key to moving history along to the second coming of the Lord. The second pillar that that, uh, I got was from John 17, and I want you to turn there with me to John chapter 17. Jesus is praying. He says, "I pray not on behalf of these only, but also for those who believe in me through their message, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, I in them, uh, you, I in you, so that they may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one." just as I are uh, as you and I are now you see the glory you have given me I've given them they connect it to revival and that revival leads to unity and I've been part of a lot of unity movements and many times when there's an outpouring of the holy spirit you'll see this in Toronto or Pensacola you'll see it in the historic revivals Christians put aside a lot of their dist- uh, differences and they come into unity it doesn't last it lasts for a season But you see how revival produces this unity for a season. Someday it's going to produce lasting unity. We have to have a heart for that. I and them and you and me that they may be perfect in unity so that the world may know that you have sent me. Do you see this? Do you see the connection of coming into unity and revival to seeing the return of the Lord? And that the world may know and that we're going to see world redemption when the Lord returns. And then Jesus prays that we might be with him where he is to behold his glory. That was also connected to the second coming of Jesus. So John 17 functioned in these communities as a key passage on the last days, which we call eschatology. It was a key, key passage passage that we have to have revival and unity to see the return of the Lord. We have to have revival and unity to complete the work of world evangelism. So these were the first two pillars, revival and unity. Now, of course, we already implied the third pillar, which we read about in Matthew chapter 24, and I'd like you to turn there with me. The third pillar, Matthew 24, Verse 14, this good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Not the end of the earth, you know, you know the signs downtown, the world is ending, the guy's got the sandwich board sign on the, the the world is ending. No, the Bible does not teach that the world will end. It teaches that this age will end, the end of this age, which is an overlapping age in terms of God's kingdom having broken into this world with signs and wonders and power and healing and influence. We are living in the kingdom in Jesus. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom that if you will enter into the kingdom of God, into the lordship of Jesus, he'll put everything in your life right. This gospel of the kingdom that the rightful king has, applied, uh, has arrived and he's calling everybody to be submitted to his lordship and to have their sins forgiven and come into relationship with him. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world to every ethnic group. And when it's been adequately preached, Then will come the end of this age. So, world evangelism is actually an act of last days involvement. It's an eschatological act, meaning having to do with the last days, that as we evangelize the world, we bring his second coming nearer. And it's not just the world, it's as you evangelize or bring people to the Lord in your neighborhood, you're contributing to moving history toward the coming of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? when you think about the power of that and so believe it or not before this theology took root there was not much in terms of world missions and protestantism the catholics were going around the world as missionaries but the protestants were not doing anything some of the calvinist reforms said when god wants to save the pagans he'll do it in his good time right but, but the passion for world evangelism now begins to give birth. And one of those Lutheran pietists was a man by the name of uh, Ludwig uh, von Zinzendorf, who founded the Moravians in Hernhut, Germany. And they had a 100-year prayer meeting, 24-7, for world evangelism and for revival. And they sent missionaries all over the world. They influenced the, uh, the Methodists. The Methodists really came out of an influence from the Moravians on John Wesley that embraced this theology of the four pillars, but he got it from the Moravians. And so they, they had this, these four. We must commit ourselves to revival, that everyone would have passion for the Lord, the unity of the church, and world evangelism. So the Moravians, they sold themselves to slave galley ships to win them to the Lord. They went all over the world in the most difficult places. They died as martyrs during this amazing 100-year period. And the biography on Zinzendorf is so profound that Patty has never been able to complete it. I've read it. it. It's so deep and powerful to her, she ends up just crying and having to put it down because of the glory of what they saw. They saw this... Back in the 1700s, friends, I thought when I got this vision for the Lord, I was getting something brand new and I didn't know that anybody else had ever received it. And here I find these folks in the 1700s understanding this. They had such a heart for unity that when the Moravian missionary would go to a city, Protestant city, they would not plant a church. If there was a Lutheran church and an Anglican church and a Reformed church or whatever, they would try to bring them into unity. If they could bring them into unity, they would serve those churches. If they couldn't bring them into unity, then they would plant a Moravian church, but that church was charged to bring the others into unity. They so had John 17 in their heart. Now, I want to say that Uh, with regards to to this one of the things that was so painful to me was when I discovered these new apostolic movements I found that a lot of them were just building their own kingdoms their own networks and they didn't have this desire for unity I found some that did thank God but a lot were just building their own little mini denominations and You know, other people could go. You could have two different streams in the city that had the same theology and had nothing to do with each other because they were relating to different apostolic streams. I was shocked. I thought they would all get this theology that I had that the the restoration of apostles and prophets was to build the church into unity. We see this uh, happening, by the way, in the Chinese church today in a wonderful way, building the church into unity. But the the fourth came to them from Romans chapter 11, that they saw that the Jewish people were still important. Walter Kaiser said this to me, uh, said this to me in a message 45 years ago, the famous uh, Old Testament scholar who's, you know, world-renowned. He said, the issue of the Jewish people has to do with God's sovereignty over all the nations. And that God is going to use Israel in the geopolitical scene to gain sovereignty over the nations. Whatever else we think about the ups and downs of the nation of Israel, where we live now, mostly. And in Romans chapter 11, they read this. They read about Paul's heart for his people, where Paul said he could will himself to be accursed for his ancient people, Israel that they might be saved. To them belong the covenants and the giving of the law in Romans chapter 9. And then he says that God has not rejected the Jewish people in verse 2 of chapter 11, whom he foreknew. And then he gives us this hope that Israel's blindness is temporary. He says in 11.11, did they stumble to fall beyond recovery? May it never be. But by their false steps, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. If their transgression means riches for the world and their lost riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much as I'm an emissary to the Gentiles, I spotlight my ministry, if I may provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if their rejection leads to the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, some said this will be world revival, some said it is the actual resurrection, and the majority of commentators believe it will be the second coming and the resurrection. You see, in the theology that I was raised in, in high school, we were all into prophetic conferences and figuring out the details of what was going to happen between nations and other things, and you know, I, in my book, I talk a little bit about what the lineup of the nations looks like before the coming of the Lord, and the details of the book of Revelation which are hard to understand. I have a book on that called Revelation, you know, uh, Passover key to the book of Revelation where the Lord showed me that Revelation is a worldwide playing out of a similar pattern of what you find in the plagues and the exodus and the escape of the people, you know, what we have in the second coming. But it's not the center for me. The center are these four pillars, For Paul says in verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own eyes that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn on godliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God has a covenant that the day will come when Israel's sins will be forgiven. Concerning the good news, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the chosenness, they're loved on account of the patriarchs, for the gifts and calling of God to Israel are irrevocable. And I have a book on that called The Irrevocable Calling. What does it mean to be called as a Jew? Well, the Moravians were so convinced on this, they also saw that Paul says, I magnify my ministry if I may save some of them, that there had to be a growing sum of the Jewish people saved before they would see all Israel saved. Unlike some Christian Zionists, even today, they didn't say it as something that would just happen at the end of the world when Jesus returns. They saw there would have to be a movement of Jewish people for Jesus that would lead up to them being saved, that the Gentiles provoke Israel to jealousy, but it's a process that finally leads to Israel being saved. But it's Jewish and Gentile together because Paul was a Jew and he was provoking his people to jealousy. So what did the Moravians do? They actually planted Messianic Jewish congregations. They didn't last, but they planted them in the 1730s. Can you believe this? You know, we, how do we know this? Well, there's a Lutheran pastor in Austria who we're friends with. His name is Herbert Binder. And Herbert went to Hernhut and looked up the archives and found etchings and drawings of underground synagogue. He found one in Amsterdam that included rabbis and a secret list of their members that came out of the Moravians. I mean, this is amazing stuff. And the, these four pillars, let's, let's uh, rehearse them again, and then I'll give you the fifth, which is ours. The four pillars, number one, passion for Jesus, Revival. Number two, unity of the church. Number three, world missions. Preaching the gospel to all the world as a witness, and the end will come. And number four, making Israel jealous because when Israel turns to Jesus, it will be the second coming and life from the dead. These are the pillars of eschatology that came into the Lutheran pietists. And it continued even into the 19th century. In the 19th century... The Emperor of Prussia. I mean, these stories are so amazing. Nobody knows this stuff because one of the worst, one of the saddest things about church history is it's forgotten. The gains that God brings in Revelation get forgotten. So here you have Frederick William, the Emperor of Prussia. You know, previously, you know, that's the name we associate with Germany. He asks his spiritual advisor, Is there anything we can do to see Jesus return? And Frederick William is told the four pillars because his advisor was influenced by Lutheran pietism. This is in the 19, 1830s, 1830s, 100 years later. Tells him these four pillars. So they had this idea. These Lutherans had this idea. Why don't we go to England and have... and, and, and talk to the Anglicans about unity between Anglicans and Lutherans, and then as part of our unity, let's have a mission to the Jewish people because if the Jewish people turn to Jesus, he will return. So he sends his emissaries to England, and they meet with the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they convince him. The Archbishop of Canterbury then uh, endorses this idea to have a joint mission to the Jewish people in Jerusalem, And the idea is that they're going to plant a church there with a Jewish bishop that will be preparing for the return of the Jewish people to the land because they believed they would return to the land and then they would win them to Jesus and Jesus would return. That was the mission, the joint Anglican-Lutheran mission. They went to Queen Victoria and she agreed with it. And then to do this, because it's a state church, they went to Parliament and they passed legislation in Parliament that included this that it was the destiny of the United Kingdom to restore the Jewish people to their land and to have this mission in the Anglican Church related to Lutherans. So they planted this church called Christ Church at the Jaffa Gate, it's still there today. It's so historic for us. They were like foreshadowing of the Messianic Jewish movement. Wow. And the Lutheran said, just to show our heart for unity, we'll let this be Anglican-led and we'll support it. I probably have my Norwegian ancestors, Oscar Skarsson, said this, your ancestors probably supported this. So this whole thrust is part of my ancestry. Now I know why God says you're more called to this from your Norwegian ancestors than your Jewish identity. Now, we add one thing to this, and I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Added one thing. You know, is it good to, to get your theology through a story? Is easier, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some proclaimers of the good news, and some shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry or service, for the building up of the body of Christ. This will continue until we come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature adulthood in the measure of the stature of Messiah's fullness. Oh my God. Fivefold ministry is to bring the whole church into unity and the fullness of maturity of Messiah before his second coming. Did you ever see that? We're talking about Ron Cottle, who gave a terrific uh, message at the conference we were at, I think uh, two years ago, about this equipping the saints can also be interpreted aligning the saints that we are to be rightly aligned in unity together and to have his heart for revival, world missions, and Israel's salvation. We are your arm for the Jewish part of this. We are the restorationist Messianic Jews in Israel planting congregations and seeking revival. The Chinese church is getting this. They say God has raised us up to be the largest church in the world so that we can affect the salvation of Israel. We are living in extraordinary days, brothers and sisters. Days where I believe we will see unity and revival, and we are finding those apostles of the unity of the church. God is raising them up. Not as many in the West. In Africa, in Asia, in China, in India, But it is happening here in the West, too. I want to encourage you to get connected to us. So now we have five pillars. Revival and passion for Jesus. Unity of the church. Completion of the work of world missions, evangelism, which begins here making Israel jealous, bringing the Jewish people to the knowledge of Jesus. And this is connected to the fifth, which is the mighty apostles and prophets that God will raise in the last days to provoke us to unity and to fulfill the final stage of the church before his second coming. That's my eschatology. Everything else is commentary. Everything else is fit. If you know nothing else except this, you know what you need to know. You don't need to know all the rest. Who's the end of grace? What is ethnicity? Is he Jewish? Is he an Arab? Is he a Muslim? Maybe he's a Roman. Who cares? When he re- revealed, yeah, you know, all right, whatever he is, he is. This is the center. I want to encourage you. We have a tremendous teaching letter. This is the thrust of our ministry. And I th- it, we're one of few Messianic Jewish ministries that believe all this. Boris believes it in Ukraine. I think he got it from us. But he believes that he's totally with us. And um, we, we are unique in Israel in holding this forth publicly. We're attacked for it. But we believe it with all our hearts. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to teach here in this wonderful church. Father, we pray that these folks would have a heart to respond and to become part of us. Would you connect to our ministry? This is a practical way to just sign up for our newsletter. is a practical way for you to get connected and to find information about what's happening in Israel and in the diaspora. But our center of focus is Israel, where our international center now is located. Lord, let this be. We trust you, Lord, to speak to the hearts of people here. In Yeshua's name, amen.